0: Uh, Hey, are you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble getting to sleep, trouble staying asleep? Well, welcome. This is Sleep With Me, the podcast that's here to put you to sleep. We do with a bedtime story. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights and press play. I'm going to do the rest. And what I'm going to do is create a safe place where you can set aside whatever is keeping you awake. Whether it's thoughts running through your head, feelings running through your body... Um, emotions running through your heart and your, your, you know, your soul, your veins, your gut. Again, I get confused about this whole limbic, oh, the lymph system. Did I, It's been a while since I've talked about how confused. You get to check if, uh, get to check if uh, Justin and Sydney have talked about that over, uh, but, uh, let me, let me, let me, so, so if you're new here, let's see, let's podcast, which is what we do at the bedtime. We take off your, create a safe place where you, uh, where you can forget all, uh, whatever's keeping you awake. I'm going to take your mind off of that. Uh, sorry. Now I'm still confused you're referring to Sawbones podcast earlier, but so, so whatever is keeping you awake, I'm going to try to take your mind off that. I'm going to use a creaky, dulcet tones, pointless meanders. I'm going to send my voice across the deep, dark night. And basically, I'm going to ch- talk. Let, let me see. Let me the, trying to always get this in earlier. If you're new here, so the podcast here's the structure: five minutes of business at the top of the show. That's how we keep the show going. Yeah, then we have a, tw- a 12 minute intro, which we've just started. Well, intro is long, long and meandering, just like the rest of the podcast. A bit strange. Like like one of those cheeses that has like a really long like like when, anytime you see a cheese with like a lot of syllables, you, you, right? That's when you're like, hmm, I never thought about this. So right now, I just walked in. Talk. I, oh, first of all, what if you just walked into some cheese? Depending on if it's a soft cheese, that could be a problem. And if you did just walk into any cheese, don't you know? Don't don't track it around the house. You'll you'll definitely get a, you'll get a stern talking to by the homeowner. So don't, so don't do that. Uh, Let let me see if I can uh, orient, before I start talking about cheese, cheese talk, uh, the podcast uh, uh, that never made it, we're talking cheese, a couple of cheese heads, that's maybe what we would call it, but then people would say, is it about a Green Bay football? No, just a couple of people talking cheese. No, 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 it's, it's too easy a joke. But if you're new here, so, like, uh, we'll do a 12-minute intro, then we'll have the episode. And what what was my point? Like, tonight we'll be covering, uh, like, a tale of the tape, a movie that I I try to remember that I saw once. So not exactly riveting stuff, but I really work hard at these podcast episodes to distract you from whatever your thoughts are or feelings or whatever's keeping you awake. So it's like I kind of take your attention away with me. And I kind of carry it lightly, like loosely in my hand, just like a, like a soft cheese, just like you would carry a soft cheese. As long as it's wrapped, you know, as long as it's wrapped, if it smells weird, because I don't want to be, I'm not going to be carrying any weird smelling cheese in my hand, by the way, at cheese mongers of the world. I mean, it makes it. It does make it does make for a nice image. I'd say, what do you think that? Would what, will what, 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 what we paint that in? Man carrying cheese. Oh, sorry, boy. My, my part of me just corrected? Boy carrying cheese. Oh, thank you. Man, child carrying cheese. Is that a watercolor? Like, I don't think pointillism. I don't think cheeses do well in a pointillistic environment. Abstract. Well. Then you'd say boy carrying something because say, you say, then it would be debatable. So say something more in the realism, more impression, maybe impressionism. I think in an impressionistic painting, I could definitely pick out some Brie. What other cheeses lend themselves to do? To, to, how about that? Here's a discussion point uh, that you don't need to like. Uh, like this would be the, this is the interactive part of your, the podcast where it'd be clear if you're new here. Follow this logical logic. Now we're gonna like so I'll pretend like I'm partially like a So now we're gonna come to the intera- interactive portion of the podcast. And if if you're playing along at home, let's make a list of uh, what uh, uh, styles of painting. What do you call it? You don't call it genres of painting. Uh, what painting techniques or artistic techniques lend themselves to what types of cheeses? Also, other than hard cheese, smelly cheese, and soft cheese, what other kinds of che- cheeses are there? Age? I know there's aged cheese, but so you, you know. So let's discuss. And obviously, if you if you're if you're new here, even you say, well, it doesn't seem like it lends itself to a very complex discussion. But at the same time, you can't escape the fact that your brain is coming along with me and you're saying, well, though, what would a cubist, you know, how would a cubist handle cheese? And yeah, like in a slice of American, which I guess, uh, you know, people of the world may say, well, you can't call that cheese. But you say, how would a cubist, you know, what, 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 what would Pablo do? And you'd say, like I'd say to yourself, like uh, you know, mobile, mobile fans, Calder did Calder did work and work with any cheese, you know, like because an impression, I guess, because we're going with it, an impression of cheese is a very artistic thing. Uh, you see, Matisse, I, 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 like I'm picturing a blue uh, person with uh, uh, hoof, hoofed feet. Uh, they, you know, maybe playing the fiddle. And, like, they, I could see them dealing in goat cheese, uh, like, so, but it, I can't picture it in my head, but I'm sure there was some cheese on the table. I don't want to get into, what do they call that, like, photorealistic. That's, you know, that's too, too you know, that's might be too boring for a sleep podcast. You say, well, that's Bray, Holy cow. That's, like, the most accurate. I say, Okay. I mean, I guess Bob Ross has probably worked in cheese before, because, okay, the, no snickering. Bob Ross is a very, like, wonderful person. No, but, but really, so I'm going to do a little cheese down They're having a little picnic down here at the beach, and they, well, you're wondering what's on the picnic? But, well, there you go. There's a little round brie and some uh, a couple of baguettes. I don't know. It's been a while since i watched Bob Ross, so I, I guess I think I have to work on my Bob Ross impression, but... uh because because I don't know if that sounds anything like Bob Ross, but that's my impre- that's impressionism. Huh. I'm not kidding either. And no, we're not gonna start to deconstruct Cubist versions of Bob Ross uh, Calderian. I, th- I would actually I would purchase that like, like a like a those are mobiles mobiles right like a, a Bob Ross mobile by Calder would that would look pretty sweet. And uh, avant-garde, I mean, I think I'm a big fan of that kind of stuff. But, again, when you're trying to reach, like, then it would have to be really out there. And I would prefer, even in avant-garde, or really, you know, I prefer a title that gives me something to grasp onto. So if you have a giant stream, what was that, Tingly, I think, uh like a giant steam-driven machine or something. I'd prefer it be called Essence of, of uh, Munster or something. So then I'd say, oh, okay. Like, it give, give, give me something palpable. Otherwise, I just start, you know, daydreaming. You know, I project my own meaning onto it. That's different. I mean, in this situation, we're talking about uh, cheese expression of cheese. <laughs> That is a book title. I mean, you, you, if there's one thing I can come up with, it's book titles. Uh, I don't know. What, what what would that be about? Expression of Cheese. Uh, I think Dumont would be the last name. You're right. I don't know. Rene Dumont. The Rene Rene Dumont story. I don't know. I guess I could write that in the uh, l- like uh, romance genre. A Tale of a Cheesemonger, I mean, that could just be a book anyway. That's pretty easy, but it does sound good. A a Tale or the Tale? A Tale of a Cheesemonger. How about this one? Cheesemonger's Blues. Do we have any jazz? I know we have the the, uh, Silvertone is a jazz singer. How about that? that? That, Was that one of Dylan's songs, Cheesemonger Blues? You know, the fridge gave out. It went all bad. My cheese don't sink, and I'm so sad. I'm sorry, normally I don't sing, and that's not really singing. But, uh, you know, when, the, when it strikes, uh, I, I, I get, I'm trying to find a Believe it or not, I'm talking, and then another. I'm trying to get another part of my brain to find a way to extricate myself from this cheese, cheese discussion. I mean, I guess the reality is, the spy is full of cheese. Cheese and hot air is is one thing that makes it up. Uh, but it's all done in good fun. Now, as you can tell, if you've been listening, the spy case isn't for everybody. It is. Uh, it's not abstract. Uh, like. Uh, it, but it does lend itself to that same look when you're, at, you know, especially don't do any first dates at any abstract uh, cheese you know. I mean, we're not talking about cheese-based art. We're talking about cheese-influenced art. And but don't take any first dates because you see, like that look on people's faces when they say, "What is this thing?" And I mean, that's natural. This podcast is uh, it's to put you asleep, but you are under no pressure to listen or fall asleep. Uh, the reason I make the shows at least uh, an hour, right about an hour, is I found over doing it over the course of 500 episodes uh, that it gives you some relief. You say, well, geez, I don't have to rush to fall asleep. This this uh, this ch- cheesehead, uh, self-proclaimed cheesehead, he's a cheesehead. <laughs> cheesehead with an S in there. Uh, he, like the, the, he, he, he'll be here and he's kind of rambling in, an, in a nonsensical way. He's trying to make a point, you know, but it's points full of holes. If you, you know, holy Swiss cheese pun! sorry, there, that got crickets. I couldn't even laugh at that. Uh, it was close, but no cigar. And, and that's an, I'm trying to think of like, a, like you put a cigar, how does that have to do with cheese? Uh, but anyway, uh, so the podcast is is good. I, I try to make it good natured, so it's all in good fun. If this podcast doesn't work for you, I'm sorry. I wish it I wish it would. I wish it did. But give it a few tries. If you're skeptical, I mean, no doubt. I, I just talked about cheese for 14 minutes, and if I'm perfectly honest, I'm I'm capable. That's the thing that maybe some people don't realize is I'm trying to uh, like tone it down. I could talk. I could go. And try to make cheese related jokes and points and go on cheese tangents for at least an hour. Uh, but, that, you know, like at some point, it just leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. So we got to move on. Uh, but if you're new here, I'm glad you're here. Uh, this one did not come together as a metaphor other than as an example of uh, what can come up in this episode. Again, I'm not exactly sure how I got cheese on the brain, but I do. Also, yeah, that's an easy joke. That's actually true. Yep, but my brain may be partially made of Swiss cheese, a moldy Swiss cheese. Okay, thanks, thanks. I don't need, I don't need the extra. It was a Waldorf and Stadler again. So I, I'm glad you're here. The reason I make this show, I mean, what else could I possibly do, right? Other than, you see, I call. I've done this. Are you hiring anybody to title books? No, no, no. We don't like a book titler. And they say no. I say you wouldn't believe how good I good I am at titling books. You just tell me, and and, the, and I do think that is a skill set I have. Unfortunately, I've had to adapt it to this podcast. But but also I've been there in the deep dark night, unable to sleep. That's the main reason I make this show. And as I always say during these openings, uh, it doesn't work for everybody. I hope it works for you. I'm glad you came by. I really hope and I really yearn to help you fall asleep. Uh, and thanks and good night. All right, everybody. So it's time for another Tale of the Tape uh, episode. While we take a little break from uh, this, uh, what do we call it? Star Trek The Next Generation. I wanted to do three movies that had a major impact in my life. And this one that we're going to talk about tonight is the one the movie itself didn't have the biggest impact on my life, but the, mo- the movie did. Well, no, no, the, the, the content of the movie did not have the impact, but the movie itself did have the biggest impact probably in my life of almost anything like uh, uh, when you just talk about one thing. Like reading books obviously had the biggest impact, but that was a c- c- combination of things. And reading Hocus Pocus by Vonnegut, When I was in high school, it kind of changed a lot of things for me. Uh, But this movie, it wasn't so much about the art of the film. And, uh, like, so we'll get into the movie. Well, the name of the movie is, uh, oddly enough, I changed the name of the movie because this is a sleep podcast. Uh, But it's the James Bond movie, A View to a Kitten, it's called. A View to a a Kitten. And... uh, it's uh, it's a Roger Moore James Bond movie. Came out in the late '80s or the mid like '85, '84, '85, '86. I'm not sure which of those. And I'm not sure if this was the first James Bond movie I saw, but it was definitely the first one I saw in the theater. But and I saw it multiple times in the theater. So here here's what I guess we'll talk about tonight. Like I'll talk a little bit more about my experience with a view to a kitten. This movie. And then I'll talk about, you know, probably like, uh, talk about, uh, let's see, James Bond movies and that. And then we'll talk about the kind of plot that I remember. And this is a Tale of the Tape episode. We've just started doing these when I was trying to remember the plots of movies that I barely, like, that I, even like this one, I've probably seen this movie 30 times and I said, huh, what what was it? Like, I remember something. So it's interesting. Tale of the Tape, uh, My mental tape that runs in my mind about the movie. Uh, So here's the circumstances as I remember them. I don't know if this is fact or or memory, uh, but I think this movie came out the same year as Goonies and Back to the Future, but I'm not positive on that. When I remember seeing this movie at the same theater, I saw Back to the Future and Goonies, the movie theater... Uh, that was just in a shopping center plaza, like, this was back before. There was multiplexes. The malls had movie theaters, but the, these smaller cinemas still existed in these non— like, now, smaller cinemas, like, exist in urban centers, uh, you know, downtowns, of cities, and art districts. Uh, this was just some one on a commercial street with, like, uh, there was a drugstore, supermarket— uh, I think it was next to the dry cleaner, to be honest with you. And it was a two or three screen theater. And it was really where my youth, like my first, like, uh, other than a couple movie experiences I had, like uh, as an individual without going with my family. Uh, and so I saw this movie of you to a kitten, uh, here. And I remember just thinking again, I, I knew it wasn't, uh, I mean, I had some awareness that it wasn't on the same level story-wise and content-wise as *Goonies* or *Back to the Future*, but it still was just a wonderful thing that swept me away. And then, as I said later on, like as I was seeing the movie over and over again, I was playing with my GI Joes. And again, I was too old; I was probably in sixth grade or f- between fifth and sixth grade, maybe. And I was playing with the GI Joes, and I remember I was in the like on the front in the front of my house outside. You know, it's kind of recreating and rewriting a snow scene from the movie uh, with a snowmobile and G.I. Joe. And, and I was wishing I had the G.I. Joe skis, the G.I. Joe that came with the skis, so I could recreate even more. Uh, but so, like, and that was the moment I realized people make these movies other than Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis. I said, well, there's people making these movies. Unfortunately, you know, at the time, I didn't give Richard Donner any credit or uh, Broccoli's or Ian Fleming or whoever else was involved in the James Bond films. But uh, I, I just remember thinking, holy cow, there's people that worked on this movie. I can't believe it. That's what I want to do one day. And like I've said in the podcast before, like who would have known the secure, secure, circuitous route I took to get to telling stories uh, but it, like, I think if I told the kid that, that I was playing with the GI Joes, like, well, you get to play with GI Joes in a different way, in a lulling, soothing way. I think that useful. And then say, well, and you're trying to figure, and you'd be trying to figure out a way to do it for a job. Uh, I think that youthful part of me, like would be b- very happy with, with the circumstances of the podcast. Uh, so like, so, so I got to see the movie. I was seeing it with my friend, Bo, probably some of my other friends like Pat and Kyle, and we're using our savings from our paper roots to go see this movie. And then my friend Bo uh, also purchased the soundtrack to this movie. And man, what a, like a, there was the instrumental part of the soundtrack. And then that would connect us to Goonies because Data liked to play the James Bond theme or the 007 theme on his boombox. But man, I can remember playing this. There was a Duran Duran song that was the title song that, you know, all these Bond movies have the, these uh, title sequences that have these kind of surreal, like, just cool montages along with the song. And this title song was made by Duran Duran. And I really can't believe it wasn't a bigger hit because it was it was an awesome song. Like, do yourself a favor, look up Duran Duran, A View to a, a Kitten. It just changed it to to the real title of the movie, and uh, let's see, and I just remember it, like it was just, it was if you like Duran Duran, it was just a really good song. It had all those. Uh, it's going through my head. It like it, it had like soaring Duran Duran melodies and hitting all the notes. Just the stuff you like about Duran Duran. For the you know two Duran Duran two or three Duran Duran songs, I know. Actually, I'm not sure I can name another one without embarrassing myself and saying, well, that's not Duran Duran, that's, uh, you know, Dixie's Mint, whatever. I say, okay, well, I know Duran Duran, I hope Duran Duran made this, and I remember Duran Duran kind of had a second, like maybe five or six years after this, like the early 90s, they had a little comeback, they had two other mild hits that I enjoyed, but they weren't like the 80s Duran Duran sound. So he had a great song, great soundtrack, and you know, good to play play GI Joe to when you're too old or imagine, you know, go pretend you're a spy. And that was another thing Bo and I did it was when we were, I guess, fifth and sixth grade. So if your kids are still playing, like we would play spy, in um, I even remember like climbing on roofs of things and like pretending I was a spy. And I guess this is sixth. I don't know how old you are in sixth grade, but. That's what I was doing in sixth grade, b- pretending I was Roger Moore, or sometimes I was pretending I was Data uh, from Goonies, pretending he was Roger Moore or James Bond. And I know Roger Moore is not exactly considered the pinnacle of, uh, of James Bond, but to, for me at the time, he, he was the only James Bond I knew. Which would cause me problems, like, later in life. And I think this might have been Roger Moore's last uh, run as James Bond. And if, if unless I'm mistaken, it was a long time for, between A View to a Kitten and then uh, Timothy Dalton was the next Bond, I think. And I don't think it was till like, 91 or 92 uh, that he, he he had his first movie out. So this is a little bit of a gap. So for me, like seeing James Bond on the big screen, and again, I hadn't, I don't think I'd seen any uh, Sean Connery James Bond movies yet. Or the gentleman George Lazenby, I think was, uh, was there anybody else other than Connery, Lazenby, and then Moore? And then it was Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan, and now Daniel Craig. And I think they've all, like, done a pretty good job. And I don't want to get into a discussion about James Bond movies because that would really take us off track because we're just talking about this one. So let's see. uh, So we saw it in Roger Moore. I think that's it. I think we should just get into the content, if I can remember. And maybe I'm buying time. So just in case anybody hasn't seen a James Bond movie. Now, this one, interestingly enough, it took place at, uh, I think it was still the height of the Cold War. I mean, maybe not. I mean, dude, facts aren't my strong suit. But there was really a very little Cold War action, and this was like a, for the most part, a domestic movie. Though it did t- take place in other cities, uh, the the big action at the end took place in the Bay Area, and and very predictive of the future because it was a bit like it ended up. It was about Silicon Valley in the end. And I don't know if that's another reason I ended up ended up out here. It's, it's totally possible that by seeing uh, that, and then seeing uh, stuff about uh, uh, San Francisco, in my uh, like book, like that, I fell in love with the Bay Area at this age and changed. You know, I said, "Well, I got to live there." I did say that. I just had an obsession with Alcatraz, and then. The Trans-American Pyramid, I don't know why, but I said, well, I like like those things, and I'd like to be close to them. So let's see, A View to a Kitten, it's really going to be a lot of editing this episode, if you're listening. A poor editor, because they keep, every time I say A View to a Kitten, before that I say the actual movie title... And it's a bit of an extreme title for a movie that's pretty uh p- p- pa- not not super action-packed. And I think the the movie poster had the Golden Gate Bridge on it. And the reason being is, like, the, the, the movie ends on the Golden Gate Bridge, or almost ends, you know, like it has a little epilogue or whatever. But I think the action comes, maybe it doesn't come to a close. I'm pretty sure it does, though, on the Golden Gate Bridge. So it starred Roger Moore's 007. Uh, M and Q, no idea. I mean, I think Q was still played by the person who played Q, whose name escapes me. And M, I don't have any idea who played M. I cannot picture M in my head. Like I don't know, Judy Dench is is a great M, so I'm I'm happy with that. And Q, uh, I almost had his name, but now I can't. I still can't think of it. His name keeps popping in and out of my head. Uh as many people know, Bond, especially at this time, was like, load the Bond girls. So I think it was Tanya Roberts was the, the actress that played the Bond girl, but I'm not I'm not 100% positive on that. Also, marketing. What's interesting is the marketing. I think this was right around the time. I don't know if Sharper Image had been around uh, before this, but Bo, who I said was my friend, his dad got the Sharper Image catalog. And they had huge tie-ins with this movie, and I can remember looking at that sharper image at Bo's house, and one w- waiting to say one day I'll be rich and I can buy, you know, movie replicas of the uh, uh, movie repl- replicas of the movie. What do you call them? Uh, I don't know the the things you use in a movie. I can't think of what they're called. Uh, but those things. So like like uh, what all the things that, all the little gadgets and stuff. And that's when sharper image. This was before Sky Mall. When sharper image was your go-to thing for uh, cutting-edge technology. Don't know if that's the case. And I, I don't. I don't know. And if you want to be smooth like Bond, you would. But you know, you'd spend all your money at the sharper image uh, catalog. So Roger Moore, Tony Roberts, and then the uh, the uh, antagonists. Oh boy! Now the, I mean I I am surprised at this like the level of a uh, a uh, two two great antagonists in this movie, and Christopher Walken and Grace Jones. And you want to talk about a one two punch uh, of like. Uh, like that makes, like, that's why the, like, I still look back at it and I say, what a, what an awesome, what cho- awesome choices. Uh, so we had, and they were like, uh, so Chris, we'll get into the, who they were, but Christopher Walken was the, uh, antagonist leader and Grace Jones was like, uh, like, I don't know what they call that. Like, what, what are the other characters called? Like not the right hand person, but they're like their action person. Like Grace Jones was the badass, and she's you know that, that's pretty simple. I mean, when you think about Grace Jones, you say that total badass. And let's see, there was also a couple other like sidekicks, a male and a female. Pretty sure the male was uh, the same actor who was in the one of the Beverly Hills Cop movies, but I'm not sure. And the other female lead antagonist, uh, I just remember her from the horse part of the movie. So the movie, like the James Bond movie, there's usually a pretty set, uh, structure, uh, though I, I don't, like, it always opens with a set act, action piece, then the James Bond theme, uh, the, the, the title song. And then the plot of the movie. So kind of like a little teaser, like unrelated action at the beginning. And this one, if, as far as I remember, it opens in the mountains. And it's pretty cool because, like, it's all in white and everybody has, their, like, so. Like since I was big into G.I. Joe, like playing G.I. Joe's, it was always cool, to, like, when people would have their snow gear. Because you'd be like, that's so cool that they have all white so they can blend in with the snow uh, no one bothered, you know, say, well, the animals that live in the snow, that's their net. And I say, okay, great. Well, this is more about the action. I don't really remember a whole lot about it other than that, uh, like, what usually happens is James Bond, in this case, Roger Moore, is trying to get down a mountain and, and, and like, either, uh, like, with something or trying to catch up with someone headed down a mountain uh, to get him to, like, to get something back. And, you know, there's people like, okay, so I think this was, like, I don't know when snowboarding started, but I do think this happened in the movie, but I'm not positive on this. Uh, One problem is that there wasn't that long before Roger Moore was in another, like, movie, Alpine James Bond movie, where he was protecting an ice skater. And I think that was a tie-in to one of the uh, Winter Olympics. I don't know if it was the 84 Olympics or the 82, but, but, but so... It's a little bit tough to pick out, but I do remember one detail: is that like Roger Moore, like a like a snowmobile. He was chasing, being chased by a snowmobile, and this was back when skiing was the main thing. And he was using his ski poles, and he was skiing, and then and then he did something to stop the snowmobile, but the snowmobile kind of uh, like went to pieces. So then he got one of the front uh, sleds of the snowmobile, made it into a snowboard and headed down the rest of the mountain. And I always thought that was cool. Like, uh, he was snowboarding essentially, I guess he was a uh, sled, b- b- snowmobile sled boarding, but he'd headed down the mountain. And I don't really remember anything other than that. And I don't know if this was one where he uncovered a plot, like he got to the bottom, and he caught the person and they said well why is this person to have plans of the uh, geological surveys of the silicon valley of california or something like that but it, like it, it didn't make a whole lot of sense uh, but anyway he, uh, he 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 i don't know he skied and, and snowboarded and there was a lot of action and it was cool and jumping, and, you know, stuff like popping and all that stuff. So that was the opening. Then there was the Duran Duran uh, song, which, again, beautiful, beautiful song. I I don't understand why that's not even replayed on 80s stations. Really great 80s song. Not a hit, but you'll recognize it. And if you like, I don't know what Duran Duran does with their voices. What do you call that? Like, uh, it's not singing, they don't sing high, but they sing like this emotional burst, uh, do, do, like, I don't want to get into music. Um, but so that was cool. And then, and I don't really remember like the, the details, I think cause this was like around the same time, uh, maybe before, no, maybe this was well before George Michael. Yeah. Cause George Michael said, let's talk about sex. I think that was in 87 or 88. And that movie, that video for that song reminded me of, uh, maybe because they had like a black light and glow paint on, it just reminded me of A View to a, G- A View to a, G- it just reminded me of A View to a Kitten's, uh, uh, title, title, uh, whatever you call the beginning of the, J- the James Bond movie. Now, what happens after the title of the James Bond movie? Like, normally that's where uh, James gets set, sent to investigate. Like, something's amiss in Her Majesty's royal service or whatever. Yeah, But no one quite knows what's happening. Something insidious is going on. So, in this case, from what I remember, is that James was sent to Paris because some, you know, and this was confusing, I guess, to a kid, like some ambassador or some high profile French official or American official. That was on some sort, you know. They were supposed to be watching over, and maybe he was supposed to meet. I don't remember if he was supposed to meet James for dinner, or I guess yeah, like some. So maybe there was an informant, and they said, "James, you got to go to this restaurant." And, and what was confusing was the restaurant was in the Eiffel Tower, I think. And not only that, it was not just a restaurant; it was a restaurant with performances. And not just any performances, but the restaurant, um, was like, had this, like, they do this a lot in Prague. I don't like a, I think they call it Blacklight Theater in Prague. I don't know a hundred percent if this was the case, but I, what I'm picturing is like a, it was a butterfly puppet show with great, like very good music and, like, so it would appear if you're watching it that butterflies are floating on the stage and they're floating to the music. I don't know if there was any actors, but there was puppeteers disguised so you wouldn't know they were there. Kind of like you see, like, when you think about the Lion King musical or any of those, uh, like, uh, newer Disney uh, stage musicals. Like, those are a little, uh, you, you know what I mean, where they're meant to blend in, the, the puppeteers. And so if my memory serves me, like James is like meeting, James Bond, I'm talking about Bond, James Bond is meeting with this gentleman and like they're having lunch. It was definitely lunch because the restaurant was lighted. And at some point we see Grace Jones and she sneaks in and not only is she total badass, but she's also a puppeteer. So I don't know if she was a puppeteer under disguise or if she uh, replaced a puppeteer, you know, when they didn't they didn't approve of that. But she gets dressed clad all in black, a bit like a ninja, which in the 80s was the height of ninjas, too. And not only does she start the puppet show, but she starts doing it to an extreme level. And then she uses one of the uh, one of the butterfly puppets to uh, um, uh, deliver a sleeping aid uh, to the, inform, James, the informant James Bond's talking to. And James Bond doesn't figure it out until it's already done. So then he chases after her. And... Like they run up the Eiffel Tower, and there's like a lot of action. Maybe there's some hench people, uh, hench persons. Is that how we refer to them now? Hench persons. And he's trying to get to the top of uh, the Eiffel Tower, and he's like, Well, I totally got her. And he's just like, he just doesn't realize that this is Grace Jones, uh, TBA. T- 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 b- So he chases her to the top of the Eiffel Tower. Again, I'm sure there was other action like jumping and elevatoring. The problem is it gets a little mixed up with Superman 2 or Superman 3. I think that was Superman 2 when there's trouble at the Eiffel Tower. And then Superman, uh, that's when Superman sends it into outer space, the elevator. Uh, which frees those three up in outer space. I can't remember. They, they know the c- c- character is, is, is Zod. I think Ember Zod. Maybe that's from Ghostbusters, but it doesn't matter. So he's chasing Grace Jones to the top of the tower and trying to figure out what she's up to. And then at some point, she parachutes uh, off of there. And James can't do anything about it. And I think her parachute was even, I don't remember. It was something funny. And she gets away. And I, I would want to say that there's a boat chase sequence, but maybe there isn't one in this movie. Though in most James Bond movies, there's also in France particularly, or in the River Thames, or another, you know, Bosphorus, whatever. You know, the Rhine. You you give me the Danube. You, you, give, me a, you, you give me a grand European river. And it, it, also in Louisiana and uh, the Mississippi, I think there was even one. I don't know if there's one on the East River. But usually, you give me a Grand Urban River, and I'll give you a James Bond boat chase or something like it. Also, Police Academy in Miami, I think there was one. And that was pretty—if my, my memory serves, that was a pretty good one, too, even though it, was, it also had comedy. So, you know, probably around the same time. But so, Grace Jones gets away, and now James Bond goes—you know, at some point, he checks back in. Boat chase or no boat chase— uh, James Bond's on the case and he has one clue, but I just don't know what clue it was. But the clue he meet, so he meets with uh, Q and M and the rest of the like uh, his administrative squad or whatever you want to call it. And then they say they're looking into this. Uh, I don't know if I think James Bond's undercover name is Sinjin Smith in this movie. It is. And let's see what what else do I need to know. So at some point he rea- they realize okay we're on to this guy of course they can't even think of his name maybe I'll remember it oh yeah because the whole co- corporation was named after him like Oscorp but it wasn't Oscorp that's from Spider Man I think it was a Z I think his name starts with a Z so maybe we will figure it out but they realize that this guy played by Christopher Walken like is is up to something. And he's also big into horses and horse racing. And they they think they even suspect, maybe they don't suspect. Because I want to say that James gets a, one of the things he gets is a like a, what is that called? A thing a horse rider would use. But I don't really remember much about their meeting. But he goes, and this I think takes place in the English con- countryside. And this is some American played by Christopher Walken. So he's playing himself. And I guess that's all I really remember is that, uh, he's playing himself and Grace Jones works for him. I think they suspect, I don't know at one point they suspect this, but that he's like engineered, he's an engineered human, maybe. And he's got some albino features. I think I'm not sure about that. Like, but also he's, uh, he's out there. Uh, but he's also very intelligent. Very, you know, he's got all those u- Uber Uber qualities. Also super rich. Uh, I almost said his name. It, it almost popped in my head. I'm pretty sure it does start with a Z. So we'll probably remember it. Zarkon, not Zarkon. That's uh, Flash Gordon, I think, or Zarkov. So let's see where, so, so he, he goes to this English horse farm undercover as St. John Smith. Why I remember that of all the things, I have no idea. And of course, even as a lad, even as a young child with who was good at suspending his disbelief, I could always, was always troubled when James would go undercover. I mean, in, in reality, it was always with a wink and a nod anyway, because everyone knew it was James Bond. But that always would pull me out of the story a little bit. I'd say, "Come on, give me a break." Everyone knows who James Bond is. He's Double O Seven, shaking that stirred. You know, someone orders a drink and they say, "Shaking that stirred." You know, get the hell out of there. You know, don't even say, "Say sorry." I refuse service. We we have the right to refuse service. I don't serve anyone that orders martini, vodka martini, shaking that stirred, a uh, dry. You know, unless you like, you know, your lovers on the dangerous side, which I, you know, I don't like, I don't, especially like uh, James Bond. I, it's not my thing. And even if you do, you'd say, okay, well, could we do the lovemaking? And then I'll do the, uh, the shaking and the stirring. You know, why don't, why don't we get that over with? And then I'll do the drink making. But so he goes out to this English horse farm or English, whatever you call it, like stables. This is his, like, and they get a view. And who, who, Felix Leiter is one of James Bond's sidekicks. But another thing is, I don't know if it's another agent. I, I, I think it was another British agent is, has to accompany James as his, uh, what do you call that? The drive is his limo driver. And so that was kind of funny because it was a good comedic actor. I can't think of his name, but he's definitely, he was definitely in a lot of big, big things. So he's not super pleased about being James's, you know, James's, uh, like, butler. So James goes out to this thing, and everyone's—here's uh, the things I remember. Everyone's tapping everybody. So James is—like, ta- James finds bugs in his room. So then he plays a recording, because uh, Christopher Walken has uh, all the rooms bugged. Also, everybody's bidding on horses, and they're trying to control the bidding on horses— uh, Christopher, Walken, like this horse scene, like uh, I don't know if it's like ten, fifteen minute scene. I, I, I really loved it. I, I don't know why. I think when Christopher Walken really shines here, because uh, he's he's just great. At some point, James James and uh, Grace Jones work out together, and I mean, I mean, then every sense of the word. First, they do a little martial arts training. I think, it like, Christopher Walken and Grace Jones are doing the martial arts training. Now I think about it. And then maybe, I don't know if James and Grace Jones just get straight to the uh, grappling, but they do some serious grappling. You know, there's a double-cross, like, there's, a, like, who who is, James is pretending to be a rich art dealer. I think St. John Smith is, like, an art dealer and also Christopher Walken's character is kind of revealed to be a little bit petty like that he they go on a like some sort of competitive horse riding thing and he's bending the rules to make himself he's like a, a very close parallel to Christopher Walken's character as Joff uh, from Game of Thrones I think maybe I made this point in one of the Game of Thrones episodes I mean, Christopher Walken, because Christopher Walken, because of his voice and his personality, he's, like, a slightly more likable, because he's a bit of a, like, a hammy buffoon, where Joff, when he, Joff's, like, a, like so when Christopher Walken's character is crying for out for attention, it's easier to watch than when Joff's doing it. But other than that, maybe maybe he's got a little Ramsey Bolton in him, but but not the uh, nasty side, Christopher Walkton's character. I guess maybe he does a little bit. But so James reveals that, uh, James finds out he's got like a super lab that he's making, like cheating at horse racing. And so we get like a secret lab that's in a horse stall. That was That was cool. Uh, we could see, like, old-moneyed Europe or something like that. James Bond undercover, Grace Jones under the covers with James Bond. Then there's a horse race, and I, I think, uh, oh, yeah, they said they cheated on the horse races by, like, having some kind of remote control. And I don't know if this was at the height of, like, horse racing in the U.S. Or why? Because it did feel like, a, like, a, I enjoyed it because of Christopher Walken and Grace Jones and Roger Moore. Also, at some point in here, James Bond teams up with Tanya Roberts. I don't know if this is the point where he finds her investigating, uh, but at some point he does. And then, at some point, James's cover's blown because his limo driver takes a takes a big long nap, uh, p- pretty much for the rest of the movie, and that kind of makes James mad because James he was an older, you know, friend of James's and a father figure type. And so James has got to get out of there. I don't really remember the details of that. It, like, he's it, just, uh, like, uh, maybe he used the uh, ejector seat. probably was a car chase that I don't remember. Maybe with the limo and, and Tanya Roberts. I'm I'm not exactly sure. Maybe there's a point with Grace Jones questioning her loyalty to Christopher Walken. I'm trying to think what else. Uh, that was, like, the biggest scene. That, that was what stuck with me the most. It was the most enjoyable. Uh, then at some point, we also see that Christopher Watkins got himself a blimp and he uh, is proposing to like the mafia. He's got all the mafia members on a blimp, uh, all the heads of all the families. So now you can see where the kid. You say, OK, maybe they're reaching a little bit here. And, and Or maybe my memory is re- reaching, but he shows him the plan. He's going to take over. I think he wants to control 100% of the silicon in Silicon Valley, like in microchips and all that. And to think how right Christopher Walken's character was, it says, I almost had it. I almost had the name of it Z something. But so he's in a blimp with the mafia. One mafia, he says, "This is how much money I need, and then we'll control all of Silicon Valley. We're going to make it into a big lake." So that was the plan with Silicon Valley. Um, I don't remember much else about like uh, that. Like he gets rid of one mafia guy. He says, "Hey, do t- t- take a ride on this slide I have in this uh, this blimp." But he shows them the map. Maybe James was hiding out or Tanya Roberts. And that's how, like, so the exposition we see through James's eyes. I mean, that would make sense instead of a cutaway scene with just the antagonist. I can kind of remember that, Like, but it gives me mixed up with Die Hard, like James hiding under a table. But maybe that happened. I don't know how he would have got out of there. And then the movie moves to San Francisco. Might, might other stuff may have happened there. But then the movie moves to San Francisco, and there's kind of three main things that I can remember about uh, the parts in San Francisco. One, there's a, ch- a chase uh, through the streets of San Francisco. Probably Grace Jones and uh, James, like t- James Bond and Grace Jones, chasing one another. Tanya Roberts. So at some point, James Bond's on a are those called, a ladder truck from the fire department. He's in the front or he's in the back. Tanya, like, they're dry. he's driving, she's driving, because uh, they have the ones, and then there's a lot of action, you know, with the uh, the ladder. Like, so maybe they snuck in somewhere, and then, the, the, like, the fire department came and they had to take the fire truck to chase uh, Grace Jones. I mean, that would make the most sense. But, I mean, I'm not trying to throw anybody in the bus, but I did not enjoy the chase scenes because they were very, very fake. Or there was something else about them that, that just stuck out to me. Whatever it was, I just remember thinking, eh, I don't like these chase scenes. And I think there was some attempts at humor and, and stuff that and I just didn't. Like, I don't know what I, it wasn't James Bondy for me. And then they uncover the next thing in the plot, which is like this way to flood Silicon Valley and make it into a lake. Oh, because he's also, like, mining. So they go down to his mine, Christopher Watkins mine. And, of course, they get caught, uh, Tanya Roberts and James Bond. And this is right when, uh, whatever his name is, is, uh, like, Christopher Watkins character is going to, like, flood Silicon Valley. And he's going to go watch it from his blimp. So this is the big climax of the movie. And he's using the fault lines to, to do that and with his drilling. And James Bond says, of course, outrage. He says, Jesus, this is going to affect a lot of people. It's just not the economy. And you're just doing this to be to enrich yourself. It's wrong. And he he uses very strong language like that. But Christopher Walken just laughs. And then Christopher Walken says, listen, Grace Jones, you got to stop this James Bond or something. But then the last minute, Grace Jones realizes that James, like, that, that, that it's wrong. And maybe, I don't know, maybe James was just, like, was, like, was, just got the light in her. And then she realizes she wants to save the day. She wants to be a heroine because she's Grace Jones, you know, total badass. So then I don't know if it was like, like maybe after a battle, like, like with James Bond, like a back and forth, but there's something. And she realizes that she could make the sacrifice to save everybody in Silicon Valley. You know, thank goodness she did, because without it, I wouldn't have a podcast. So it's pretty great. Uh, Solid state all the way. We owe you, Grace Jones. My heart is as solid as the state, like, I don't know what to say, but she, so she makes the sacrifice and she, it's very, I remember that scene, she had a lot of emotion on her face and I said, well, this Grace Jones is awesome. So then James has to stop, uh, or I don't know if he just has to catch crystal walking at this point. But they go up in the blimp. I think somehow he, like, climbs the rope to the blimp, and then he climbs on the roof of the blimp, and then he's trying to get in the blimp, and maybe Tanya Roberts is in the blimp. So he wants to rescue her. That would make more sense. But also shows a a terrible employer this guy is because he just leaves Grace Jones. So then they, they fly to San Francisco, and then James and Christopher Walken have a showdown, and I guess the blimp gets caught, like at some point they end up having a showdown on the, like, uh, the towers of the Golden Gate Bridge. I don't know if, like, the, uh, the blimp got caught or what, but it's like a back and forth with uh, you know, like, but again, I don't think, like, the main things I remember about this movie enjoying were the horse scenes, and I'm not, like, a big horse person. I just liked, uh, something about that. And then, you know, Grace Jones' the sacrifice, uh, I hope I'm getting the right person. But I I don't really remember much about this scene other than I said, geez, I'd like to walk up, you know, I'd like to go up on the towers of the Golden Gate Bridge. But at some point, it's up the, the blimp's up there, and then they're going back and forth. But then James tricks Christopher Walken, maybe using, like, his last gadget. I mean, that's usually another thing. So then Christopher Walken thinks he's getting away in his blimp, but it ends up his blimp, you know, runs out of gas, we'll say, and then... There's victory, and then there's probably a a coupling scene with uh, James and Tanya Roberts, and then the movie come You know, the movie comes to a close. So yeah, I guess like looking back at, it, I don't know, I'd like to rewatch it. I mean, you can't really go wrong with Christopher Walken or Grace Jones. I'd like to I guess rewatch it to see if any of that happened in that order. Like to see if that restaurant was really in the uh, Eiffel Tower. Do they have an Eiffel Tower restaurant like that? Like lots of natural light and butterfly, you know, b- black light butterfly performers. Because that would be sweet. I mean, that would be something fun to do. And what else? I like. Uh, I wish I could remember Christopher Watkins' and the company's name, but it was like Z Corp or something like that. And to think he wanted to corner the market on uh, microchips, like that's pretty pretty uh, wild. It was a long time ago. But yeah, I kind of think that's it for the tale of the tape. I just remember watching that movie a lot, eating score bars. That was another thing. Uh, he said, one day I'll be rich enough to buy an eight-pack of score bars and go to a James Bond movie and eat them all. And I guess that was my first James Bond movie, and then I probably watched it. Then I, at some point, maybe when I got it when Blockbuster, then I would watch a lot of James Bond movies, and then some would be on TV. But I think most of them I watched with my friends on VHS tapes. Uh, like, uh, And then it took me a while to see them all. I mean, not until, like, my 20s did I see some of them, like, uh, all of the—what do you call them— uh, Sean Connery ones. And you may ask, what is my favorite James Bond or James Bond movie? It's a good question. I rem- remember really being excited about the first uh, Timothy Dalton movie, just because it'd been so long. And that was one where he dealt with a drug cartel, and I think he had two love interests in that movie. And I remember like uh, was being like, I remember seeing that in the movie theater and being really hyped for it, and kind of being let down. And to be honest, that's sometimes, like, James Bond is one of those movies that are just so close to nostalgia that it's tough to totally ever deliver. I mean, I think Tim—or, uh, what's his name? Roger Craig does a great job, like, as a James Bond. I really enjoy the movies. But again, it's like, like it's it's tough to make movies like that. Like, let's just be honest. So, like, and, and then to have everybody's youthfulness tied to them. Uh, i trying to think of other ones that stick out to me. That's, I mean, out of all the James Bond movies, this is the one that sticks out to me the most. And then the next one would be the first or second. Maybe that's the second Timothy Dalton movie because he had one where he's dealing with Russians. And he went through a pipeline. But maybe that was the second one and he drives on the lake. Uh, and then, you know, we we had waited so long for Pierce Brosnan to be James Bond. I don't know if it was anticlimactic the one thing was it Timothy Dalton where he had more of like people were like well Bond's got his swagger back he's a little bit tougher and so I but I don't know if that was because remember he Felix Leiter had gotten married and that's when the cartel dealt with Felix Leiter and James was very mad about that. But I don't know. It's good to escape for a while, and I'm glad you escaped with me tonight with View to a Kitten, with uh, Roger Moore, Grace Jones, Christopher Walken, and Tanya Roberts. Thanks, everybody.